0: away we go here we are with episode number 25 of the principles of performance podcast i am your host eric degatti along with my co-host who is back from his uh his holiday break Uh, mike you were off in your uh tax haven island getaway uh, this week right
1: yeah that's exactly what it is yeah i (laughs) know um you know what maybe we'll we'll save that story for another podcast what i've been up to um nothing good but i'm back we're we're ready to roll and uh we're excited for today's guest.
0: Absolutely. We're back for a good one. So our guest today uh, is Michael Crandall. Uh, he's a trainer and coach who started off in, in Cleveland, and then he went to Boston up in your neck of the woods, Mike. And now he's, he's right over the river from me in New York City. Uh, his primary focus is high-level business executives and organizational fitness. He's going to explain what that means, uh, where he integrates strategies for fitness, nutrition, lifestyle, mental vitality to help a create a more positive well-being and fitness culture in the workplace and he also has a weekly newsletter we're going to put the the link to that in the show notes uh, which has some great stuff where you can educate yourself on practices to better fitness and performance in your life and I connected uh, with Mike through Twitter just because I love the content he was putting out and asked him to come on and very excited to have him so welcome to the principles of performance Mike
2: it's great to be here thanks for having having me
0: and Mr. Perry how are you doing today
1: living the dream, buddy, just, uh, you know, running around and uh, trying to run a business. And I think both of my kids are still kicking. So I, I at some point, I got to get them off the bus. So now things are good, man. Can't complain.
0: Awesome. So let's get rolling here. So, um, Michael, you focus on, on somewhat of a unique niche and working with business executives. And so kind of tell us how you landed in that in that spot. And, and how does fitness and wellness kind of help perform, perf, uh, improve their performance in the boardroom and and in the conference room? um, and, and how you kind of introduce that, that specific, uh, niche that you're working with.
2: All right. So, um, let me rewind here for a second. So I've been training for about 12 years and, uh, through those 12 years, you kind of end up, I, I think like any other profession sort of leveling up what you're doing and who you're working with. But I started off in Cleveland and I was at a very specific corporate wellness gym. That was actually an ex-performance uh, or athletics-based gym. So I was there for four years getting to work with an in- interesting clientele. And at, at those locations, we, we were actually going into companies uh, back when that was very easily acceptable. We were going into the companies and bringing wellness to them, bringing fitness classes to them. And uh, looking back on it, it somewhat of a po- like a PowerPoint structure of just talking them through nutrition, exercise sleep, um, all different topics in the realm of their own personal health and their own personal fitness and how they can translate those things into the workplace. Uh, When I moved to Boston, I joined a gym there that was really focused on uh, business executives. And you just end up working with these people over the years. And when I moved to New York, I moved to another gym where the the primary focus is really just these C-suite executives or clientele who really don't have much time to uh, be spending in a gym, they want to come in there and be as as efficient as possible. So um, I would say a natural progression has just been leveling up my own career through time and tenure. And the other thing is, I kind of work myself hard. So I've been I work from 6am at times all the way until 8 or 9pm. I'm sure like both of you guys do. Um, I think because of that, you you learn to relate to people who are living living a similar lifestyle. So it starts off, you're trying to figure out, hey, how can I make fitness work in this tight window for me? How can I make health work in a, in this tight window while I'm on the go all the time? And you kind of refine that language and you refine that process for yourself. So it becomes natural to start having conversations with those people.
0: Now, is this something that they're usually receptive to in terms of making that connection of their own fitness and health and wellness, and then how they're going to actually perform, uh, at their jobs.
2: I would say receptive in the sense that some people come right in there, ready to go. And they want immediate advice that they want to apply from the very get-go and then others need to be coached through that process. Um, some just want to be a little bit healthier than they are now, but they're really not trying to revamp their entire lifestyle others don't see how their health or fitness would even affect them at their jobs. Um, I actually think those clients are easy to work with at times because the bar is so low, so many things make them feel better, and that it's kind of easy to get them moving along quicker than it may seem. Uh, The people who are gung-ho about it, they typically have a pretty high level background in fitness um, already coming in, so you have to really on your A-game to start incorporating new strategies that are useful for them. Um, But I would say it's similar to any other clientele you're working with as far as what they think they know, uh, what they already do know, and where you're trying to change their perception of how they should see those things.
1: Very cool. So let me ask you this. In in a lot of your content, you discuss uh, the impact of lifestyle factors, sleep nutrition, stress management, breathing, and all of these is part of a improved performance in general. Um, how do you address these with your clients and how do you prioritize these, these areas with your clients? Because I imagine a lot of people, they look at this and they say, well, breathing, sleep, nutrition, I don't know if I have time for that, but I can really do a killer workout. Like, do you find that there's a little bit of a balancing act when you're trying to Um, educate people on sort of the process on a combination of the needs and the wants?
2: I would say it's, it really ends up being, you know, to humble myself, I I love training. I love resistance training. I like being in the gym and kind of getting after it with people, but that really isn't what's going to move the needle. In a best case scenario, I, I see them for three hours of a week and sometimes I don't even see them in person if they're in a different country or traveling to a different time zone. I'm I'm doing a Zoom workout or a FaceTime workout with them. And the equipment that they might have at a hotel is typically pretty good uh, based on the hotels that they go to, but it, it's not always the case. So lifestyle factors are, are much more important in my opinion because it's gonna make up the other 23 hours a day where I don't see them or maybe a week long period where I don't see them at all. So that really has to be a larger part of the conversation, whether they are receptive to it or not, you just have to slowly walk them, walk them through that.
0: So one of the taglines in doing my research for the show that I saw on your profile that jumped at me was to show up every day. Um, And so tell me what that means to you and and tell me about some, some key habit building strategies that you like to implement with your clients.
2: So showing up every day, in my opinion is if you're programming in a useful way for your clients, uh, they're not—they're not here for a performance. I mean, some run marathons or some do uh, triathlons or Ironmans or half marathons, but it's really not what their focus is. Um, showing up every day means that I should be programming in a way that is actually useful for them to build habits around. Like, I don't want them to come in and do a workout that would make them feel exhausted the second day that would be counterintuitive to why they're actually coming there they need to have a lot of energy for their careers uh, in an ideal scenario they're building habits like trying to work out more consistently so my my go-to for them is to make sure that they are not actually getting to this nine level ten intensity or nine ten um, level intensity without feeling the effects of that the next day. So I would say two people that I've learned from the most in this realm would be James Clear, who we we all know. Um, he his, his idea is that you should make the barrier for entry on a habit so low that it's almost laughable that you wouldn't be able to do it. So if I'm trying to get someone to work out more, I might drop that workout down to 5, 10, like to 5 to 10 minutes in the morning where they can do a warm-up or five to to 10 minutes in the evening where they can do a cool down before bed and you want people to get moving and feeling good, they get addicted to that feeling before you start asking them to do higher level things. Uh, The other person that I think I've learned a lot from in the sense of habit building is Brad Stahlberg. Uh, He's written a a number of books on the subject, but one lesson I really love from him uh, that I take with me everywhere is that You cannot wait until you feel good to start to take action on the things you want to take action on. You have to start doing things in order to feel good. So the process is actually what makes people feel motivated. They're not motivated first, therefore they start the process. So showing up every day to me is making sure that there's all this cool science about anaerobic training and HIIT training and all these uh, niche methods that people love to talk about uh, on podcasts and uh, in books, newsletters, stuff like that. But I think that those are the very final 2% things that people should be working on before they really start to basically be present every day for their health and fitness.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and our course, we we our course is on designing programs, and and we talk about as a huge chunk before we get into the nuts and bolts. And we're going to go down that rabbit hole of that that the, the intensity stuff that you just mentioned. But you know, I tell a story at the facility that I was renting space out of. We used to have a guy who used to walk around the the um, corporate park. And he had this routine and it was rain or shine. If it was 90 degrees or two degrees and he would walk and he had this weird thing he would do. He'd stop in front of our door and he'd march in place. And at first it was a little off-putting. Like my clients would get a little freaked out. Like that guy is a little, you know, um, different out there. That's, it's kind of weird how he always stopped in front of our glass door and and did it. But I noticed it always happened during the same client because it was the exact same time every single day. So like I would tell people, I would take that guy's workout over most of the, you know, specialized periodized programs that people have, because he gets it done every single day, come rain or shine. So that habit piece was is really big. And I'm glad that you brought that up. And those are two great references. Uh, uh, Atomic Habits is the one book and Stolberg is Practice of Groundedness, I believe, Uh, right? Yeah, 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 awesome books. So, all right. So now that you mentioned it, let's, let's go the opposite way. Let's go down the rabbit hole. And uh, how we originally connected on on Twitter uh, was a post you did about Zone 2 training. Now, Zone 2 has become very in vogue. Uh, the problem is, is when I see a lot of the discussions about it, we don't have a really clear definition of what that means. So depending if you're using a Peloton, an Apple Watch, a Morpheus strap, uh, or what have you, it, it, everybody kind of thinks differently of what zone two is. And I think you had some really good, uh, input on that. So let's, let's go down this rabbit hole talking about zone two and kind of tell me what that means to you.
2: So traditionally, I think the confusion comes from, we, we always know the heart rate max 60 to 70%, 70 to 80%, et cetera. That's where people develop their training zones from. Um, and those are useful methods before, I don't know, science tech is so good now. We don't really have to rely on those methods if we don't want to. It's still a great way to educate the masses. But um, zone two to me was is something that I formulated from using a cortex metallizer, which is a spirometer. And it basically is breath by breath technology during a VO2 max test. Basically, you can take someone from a very slow walk to a very light jog to a moderate jog. Then a hard jog and then a run. And during that, you're recording their breath through the entirety of that test. And from that beginning, you'll basically see what their baseline metabolism is in that moment, which it might be just a, oh crap, I'm taking a test right now. So I'm a little amped up, but somewhere along the slow walk to the moderate walk fat burning will really, really accelerate and then plateau. So during that period of time is where we kind of point out that, okay, this is zone two, this is where their body is burning the most fat. And the technology does it basically by taking the amount of carbon dioxide that they are breathing into this mask and then dividing it by the amount of oxygen consumed. So when the amount of oxygen consumed equals the amount of carbon dioxide being uh, expelled into that mask. Now we know we're switching from a fat metabolism to a carbohydrate metabolism. Basically that zone that happened all before that is when we are gonna be burning fat and that's where we wanna isolate people's zone two. Um, Now down the road, I learned about this later. Unfortunately, I probably learned about this in school that it wasn't uh, maybe highlighted as much 10 to 15 years ago but uh, now later on, blood lactate is now something that's also getting more popular to isolate zone two training. Um, basically when our our blood lactate rises above its baseline, which you can test with a little finger prick. Uh, maybe, I think I learned from Alan Cousins online that when it basically goes about 0.3 over your baseline, that's when we start to see that, okay, this is also maybe a similar time as when someone is switching to a carbohydrate metabolism. So we want them underneath that point again as well. Um, So that's zone true as defined by me. um, And that's how I use it with my clients. Now, if I can't run a spirometer with them, then I will use a formula and then I'll go 65% of heart rate max. And if they're relatively unfit, you know, subjectively, in my opinion, unfortunately, if I believe they're relatively unfit, I'll do 60 to 65% of their heart rate max on my formula. Or if they're relatively fit and they have a background, maybe they used to play sports in high school, maybe they were working out a ton before, before meeting with me, then I'll probably do 65 to 70% of that heart rate max.
0: Now, Mike, before you jump in with your question, a couple other things that, that have, uh, I've seen is Peter Atia obviously talks about this quite a bit in, in very big and zone training. Uh, and he talks about that threshold being 2.0 in terms of millimole of lactate once you cross that threshold, um, which we're going to circle back to with a, a bigger question on something very cool that I saw that you did. Um, now, if um, someone doesn't have that ability to to look into well, let's actually back up. How simple is it for someone if they did want to do that testing? I know you recommended one uh, meter that you use um, on, on one of your posts. How simple is it if someone did want to get a little bit more accurate um, if they can't have access to a spirometer or something like that?
2: Uh, it, it's not. So are you asking, I'm sorry, are you asking me if if someone could have access to those, how they would do it?
0: So this I, I would imagine for the average person to get the 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 hookup with the spirometer would be pretty intensive and, and expensive, correct?
2: Yes, it could be, but I would say if you live in a metro area and you are interested in your own health, there there's a lot of sports medicine clinics that would probably do it in a greater metropolitan area in most cities in America. like uh probably I'm sure there's a few hospitals in New York City that does it. Uh, we do it at my gym, but yeah there there should be more places to do it but yeah you're probably paying a couple hundred dollars for that test
0: got it and then the and then in terms of the lactate monitoring there was a specific monitor i saw that you recommended um tell tell me a little bit what that would involve and and kind of what people can expect from an expense standpoint and from a, a time standpoint
2: i would say the nice thing about the the nova biomedical device that i use the lactate monitor that i think it's called the lactate plus monitor that i use from them is now that's probably even more expensive than the test, but now you have it. You could repeat it as much as you want. So it's maybe an initial cost that's slightly higher, but now you can learn and practice with it as much as you can. Um, you maybe have to get over uh, finger pricking yourself with a lancet, but it, it's relatively pain-free. And basically this little meter, just you prick your finger and it tells you exactly what your, your lactate is in that within 15 seconds.
0: And then how are you implementing that during the the session to kind of find out when you've broken that threshold or kind of find that that tipping point?
2: Uh, So it'd be similar to the VO2 max test where you're maybe holding uh, a period of time. So maybe five to seven minutes at 125 beats per minute, five to seven minutes at 135 beats per minute. And then you repeat that at 145, 155, 165. And you're basically trying to find oh, where is this going now, uh, according to Peter Atia. So where is this now approaching 2.0? Or if you're doing an endurance testing for this purpose, you can maybe just use your baseline and then slightly over this baseline. Uh, so it, it's relatively easy. It probably is like a 30 to 45 minute test. Uh, I think it's hard to I will say it's it, it's not that easy to do if you're the only person in the room because uh, as you you're sweating on a treadmill or sweating outside, you're trying to you know prick your finger and and keep your hands steady at the same time. So it's nice to have a partner or have someone do it for you.
1: interesting. So so, I have a quick question for you. And let's say someone again, they want to uh, they want to do a little bit of zone two training. They don't have access to any of this stuff. Um, so one of the methodologies that I've heard a lot of people talk about is what we call talk test and, um, you know, a very simple way to sort of understand if you're ready to go back and do another bout of something, or if you are sort of staying in your relative zone too. And it's basically, if you can have a normal, a normal conversation with someone without having to, you know, have a, a gasp at a certain point to, to get in a little bit more oxygen and move more volume. Um, do you think that the talk test is a good guideline for someone that, is just starting off.
2: Just starting off. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, maybe a good way to start to hone in on what that zone is. So if you're going out for a walk or a run by yourself and you notice at this point, or you're with a partner that you couldn't hold a conversation without having to take those breaths of air really quick in between a a word, you're probably beyond zone two at this point. Um, I, I tend to ask my clients to nasal breathe to hone in on that zone a little bit better because as long as they can nasal breathe, they are at least, and remember we know from the spirometer that if they are controlling the amount of the air exchange in their body under a more, more calm circumstance, then that ratio should be ideal for them. So as long as they, they can do that, uh, they should be in a at least close to a zone where their body is prioritizing fat to a certain point.
1: Awesome. No, that's because I, I think for a lot of people, um, especially with a lot of our listeners, they want, you know, just give me like the easiest way to understand this and implement it like in 15 minutes, right? So I just wanted to ask, but um, so what would you say are the primary benefits of zone two and how much does the average person need? Let's just say like on a weekly basis, like how many hours or minutes would you say per week is ideal for the average individual? So I would say the
2: that- first, the two main primary benefits here are that we are going to burn fat during those efforts, which uh, this is where the, the argument comes from HIT training and aerobic training most often is you will be working at a lower intensity than you'd be used to during zone two training. But the benefit is that you would be prioritizing specifically fat as a fuel source during those efforts. And it's not only that we're trying to burn a lot of fat during that 30 to 45 or maybe even 90 minutes if you have the time. Um, We don't only want to burn fat during those efforts. We want to teach our body and develop the ability to burn fat at rest also. And this is a great on-ramp to having that base level metabolism. Um, The other benefit is that under the same environment, under the zone two environment, our body is producing lactate, that ideally we are we are shuttling to use as a fuel source. And under this environment, this is not an overwhelming process. So blood, the blood lactate or the lactate that is being produced is not building up in the blood that much and we are able to use it as a fuel source. So the two main benefits of zone two, and I would even, we could probably clump zone one training into it, just low zone training is that one, you're burning fat, you're teaching your body to burn fat, and now you're also shuttling out lactate from building out, building up in your blood, which is a uh, even maybe even a better benefit to it for long-term health.
0: So I got a bunch of stuff I want to go on with this. So yeah, as do um, I. So
1: just I want a quick uh, one more thing. So uh, just kind of on a weekly, you know, if you had to give someone a, a weekly prescription of Zone Two, how many hours or minutes would you say would be a good starting point?
2: Yeah, so this is maybe where I work with my clients uh, the most on. I, I would say a starting point. And now, let can we just briefly define structured activity and unstructured activity? So structured activity is when you put gym clothes on, and you are ready to go to the gym. Unstructured activity is the, the place that people lack awareness on that can count as zone one training. Like, skip the Uber sometimes, skip the taxi, don't get in the subway walk when you can. So between unstructured activity and structured activity, I think if people can get to that point where they're doing like an hour a day, that's really beneficial. If someone has really, really lofty goals, uh, then yeah, you want that to just be structured time, maybe an hour a day. And that is like, you're basically, that's also your prep baseline work for marathon
0: training. So I'm going to jump off of that. So Uh, In terms of uh, time, I can tell you percentage wise, um, it should be a much bigger bulk of your training than the high intensity stuff. And even if you look at um, uh, uh, Alex Hutchinson wrote a great book called Endure, and he talked about when he was at Duke. Uh, he would see the Kenyan runners and he said they would be running and they'd be laughing and joking with each other, which is essentially zone two training. Obviously their zone two is like my zone seven. Like I would have to sprint all out to keep up, you know, for a minute, but it's relatively low intensity. And, and unfortunately people flip that and they do a lot more hit in high intensity work that you, uh, in terms of the, the ratio of what you do for one versus the other, in terms of minutes per week, I've seen, um, uh, uh, Huberman talks about you know, 180 to 200 minutes, which is uh, a great ideal if you don't work with people like you work with, right? 180 200 minutes is a pretty lofty goal for somebody with a pretty busy schedule. So you and I went back and forth on this on how do we actually program it and make it realistic. Where do you see more of a realistic sweet spot for the for the average person?
2: So for the average person, if I can now clump that into structured activity and we're not talking about 180 minutes, then at least three workouts a week. And I tell everyone that these workouts at a bare minimum should be 35 minutes. So if we're getting in three of those a week for 30 to 35 minutes, we're now looking at, uh, you know, 90 to hundred minutes per week. And then I'm really begging them at that point to walk, to get a coffee once in a while uh, walk with your husband or your wife or your, your kids in the morning on a Saturday, don't count it as a workout, but just let's try to build up some of the unstructured time. So if you're not really hitting a high level of structured time, try to make up for it by getting on your feet more often and just accumulating steps throughout the day.
0: And which is hugely important for fat loss. Uh, Dr. Lane Norton talks about NEAT, Uh, non-exercise activity being a much bigger component than uh, structured activity in terms of overall fat loss for people. Um, Now, one of the things that makes it tricky, and this is a question I went back and forth with you and Charlie Weingroff and a couple other people with, is that once you've kind of crossed that threshold, right, into into starting using lactate, it's kind of no going back, right? So let's say, you know, I said, well, what if someone said to me, I want to do 20 minutes of zone two uh as a warm up and then i'm going to go do my high intensity work or a lifting uh workout and then i'm going to go back and hit an extra 20 or you know 15 20 minutes when i'm done it, it kind of doesn't work that way from a physiological perspective yes you can get in that heart rate range but it won't be zone 2 physiologically as you described it correct
2: yeah because when we you know depending on the person when you cross over that threshold where you're now building up blood lactate it it might not come. It might not be returning to baseline levels for maybe hours, um, and this is where you can get in some heated arguments with, you know, just the hit crowd only. Where if they don't have this baseline of aerobic effort, then it, your recovery is even worse. So you really need these zone two efforts to kind of be clumped together. Uh, I do let people change their modalities. So if someone's like, oh, I'm gonna get off the bike and I'm gonna go run or walk, that's fine. Uh, other people accumulate things throughout the day for like 90 minutes or two hours. I'm I'm not as big of a fan of that unless we're at least under the, at least, as long as we're setting expectations the right way that, hey, that's not the same as doing it for 90 minutes straight, but as long as you understand that and that's the best way you can do it by all means put it together that way. But you're right. Once you cross that threshold to get back to your original question um, yeah, your zone two work should always come before any heavy, heavy uh, intensity effort work.
0: Now, do you know of any potential interference effect as as an old bodybuilder meathead, right? My fear would be, Oh no, that's going to take away from my gains. Could there be some interference effect possibly there that you know of?
2: I think when we read these studies or we discuss these studies and we're talking about high level people um, like uh, experts in bodybuilding, for example, I think that uh, at least for the population I, I work with, it, it's certainly not a concern because I don't think we ever hit that expert level of lifting where, oh, they're going to be too fatigued to now do the resistance training effectively and perhaps killer gains. Now, there could be a level or classification of high skilled bodybuilders where this might become an issue. Um, I don't have the study on me, but I believe there was at least one study done on at least cyclists who did their cycling before their lifting and the results weren't horrible on that.
0: Yeah. And as you said, for the, the, the mass majority of the 99%, it's not making a, a huge difference. Most, and, and most people don't usually train hard enough that it's going to matter uh, enough in the weight room. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So one more thing on, on zone two, and then it's going to cross over into breathing, but this is where the two meet. And this is ironically where you and I first connected is you had an awesome post where you did a really cool self-experiment, very Tim Ferriss-like of you, of, of doing uh, an experiment where you did the same workout back to back, but one you did zone two with nasal breathing and only, and then the other one you did with mouth breathing. And I thought it was fascinating. And so kind of tell us about, what you found and kind of what you took away from that.
2: So I originally started on this idea mainly because you have these conversations with your clients over the years where they're like, oh, well, I'll just have my conference calls while I'm walking and that will count as my zone two time. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, well, if the spirometer is so set on how we're measuring you know, fat oxidation, if someone is talking into that mask, basically or talking nonstop during the effort, does the gas exchange really work out the way we want to? Because you would assume that during a talking bout, you are expelling a lot of carbon dioxide. I don't even know in this moment, am I bringing in as much oxygen as I'm expelling carbon dioxide? So therefore, am I now burning carbohydrates? So my reason for doing this was, okay, if we don't control every variable and we let people just kind of do what they want, doesn't matter. So basically what I did is I did a two mile run on a Wednesday and I did nasal breathing only. I tested blood lactate before and blood lactate after. And it was a very baseline test. It was, it was 136 beats per minute for me, which is something I know to be, that's like middle of my zone two. Um, and the next day I did a mouth breathing, same run, Um, and my blood lactate was much higher after the mouth breathing effort, which is kind of what I expected, but I don't know if I expected it to be drastically different, and and since then, I have repeated that many times, and I consistently end up higher on blood lactate when I am mouth breathing versus when I'm nasal breathing, so I don't know if it's because, hey, my breathing, maybe me personally, This, so this is, could just be me individually. Maybe I'm just a really inefficient mouth breather, or maybe I've now been mouth or nose breathing for four or five years consistently during my cardiovascular work. Am I just now much more efficient at doing that? And can I kind of like close the gap over time now? So that's maybe where my curiosity is most. If I'm consistently mouth breathing, my blood lactate is not where I want it to be. Can I close that almost as if it's independent of a nose breathing effort.
0: And I love this because, uh, I, even though it's an N of one, I have been playing around with, with breath, uh, during conditioning, um, for myself personally, as well as I work with a lot of, uh, high school teams. And so one of the things we started implementing, um, if they're going to, you know, the coaches want to do some sort of conditioning at the end, I would do something where they would do nasal only breathing and they would just walk at a brisk pace. For say thirty seconds, and then they'd sprint all out for five seconds, and they'd have to learn to recover and settle themselves um, through only nasal breathing, which has a a whole psychological component that I'm sure we're going to get to um, in terms of managing that stress. Okay, and when I saw it really reap its benefits, is I'd be on the sideline with the coach, and when they came to uh, when we had a timeout with with uh, only a couple minutes left in the game, if everybody came to the sideline and they still had their mouthpieces in, I said, you know what, we're in pretty good shape. Right. It's when they're ripping their helmets off and and they're under this stress, you know, type of fight or flight mouth breathing that we were our conditioning was much worse. And and we have found a much higher efficiency with that. So that's that's one place where I've really seen the connection with with breathing strategies and conditioning. The other places with myself and something I've been playing around with, and I'd love to get your feedback on it. And I've actually talked to a couple of people that I know that are um, ex-phys professors, and I'd love to do some research with it, is doing um, breath holds within a um, cardiovascular session. And uh, I know I kind of got this idea from Patrick McKeon in in, uh, his Oxygen Advantage. Um, And I know, I think Brian McKenzie does some of it where I would basically get to whatever I think my zone two is. And I would just do a breath hold, do exhale. And on the exhale, I'd hold for as long as I could comfortably hold, which generally is about 10 to 12 seconds, maybe 15 on a good day, every minute on the minute and um, experimenting with that. And what I would see is is pretty wild is at the same pace. So let's say, and I do it on a a bike uh, in my basement is that I'll see that my heart rate will sway you know, 20 beats, sometimes 20, 25 beats. And my thought being, okay, well, if I could get that kind of, of interval type training with just my breath, it's, it's a lot less orthopedic stress. So could this be something like a blood flow restriction is where I can have less orthopedic and and structural stress for someone who's maybe coming off an injury, or maybe it's an athlete that we can't have sore the next day and get this strategy in for some interval work.
2: Yeah, I think what you just outlined is fascinating. And I think that the research will eventually, you know, hopefully catch up with these things. But, but I agree with you Um, with my clients. I don't always recommend to them that they start holding their breath during their cardiovascular work, but I personally on zone one or zone two efforts do practice with that. Now, now maybe I, I do have one or two clients out of, you know, 20 to 25 that I'm recommending these to, like maybe the more higher level clients. But I do think it's fascinating, uh, one, to learn to eliminate the orthopedic stress by playing with our breath. And two, it says, what can we do in a session to start to teach you the principles of doing this before they think I'm you know, out in la-la land recommending things on paper that they haven't even tried in person yet? But but in session, nasal breathing is definitely where we always start. Um, and I, I agree with you too. There's also this, this neurological component to doing that as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, the feedback that I've gotten from some of the clients I've experimented with is exactly. that they they get to a, uh, a much more calm state, like they get to almost this you know, uh, flow Zen-like type state after doing it. And, and it's very cool. So I'm doing it sometimes with them almost more as a psychological factor than it is a physiological factor.
2: I believe that, uh, even Steph Curry's coach incorporates these types of things to him and they look at breathing as a, uh, well, where my entry level into this was, was from a biomechanical standpoint before a physiological standpoint. And then you you quickly realize that, wow, the, the physiological side of doing this is maybe more profound than the biomechanical side. But uh, like from personal experience, I my sense of calm has really changed over the years when doing my cardiovascular training, my thoughts are just clear. Um, it's kind of like if you were sprinting, you can't think about anything else anymore. You're just focusing on that sprint. When you're jogging at pace at zone two, i feel like my thoughts are exceptional like it's my best thinking of the week so i don't know if it just helps amplify some of your neurological state because of uh the vagus nerve tone um i I don't know
0: there is some pretty cool uh research that uh uh, I'll have to post repost some point this week is uh, showing brain scans, doing nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. And it's completely different in terms that's of brain activity. And I'm with you. I keep a notepad next to the bike when I'm riding on it, if I'm doing my, my lower intensity stuff, cause that's where I get some of my best ideas. Yeah. So, to- I- oh,
2: I'm sorry.
1: No, you can go ahead. Go
2: ahead. I, was gonna say, I used to always run with music or listen to podcasts and now I sometimes feel like I just need to be alone with my thoughts and I save like the podcast thing for the zone one days when I'm walking around the city or walking to work, uh, but I really like the zone two days just kind of lost in my own thoughts thinking about things.
1: Very cool. So I have a, a question for you. Um, So when you are introducing uh, just, you know, breathing in general to people, how in-depth are you getting at the beginning? Uh, Are you you focusing on the time of inhalation versus exhalation? Are you cueing an autonomic pause? Like how in-depth are you getting early on with your clients when you're trying to teach them the basics of, of kind of nasal breathing in general?
2: I would say early on, almost everyone I work with starts with basically their core training is some type of mixed breathwork training where they're learning to hold planks while only breathing through their nose. Um, little things like that is, is when I mean that the benefits are biomechanical, I want them to increase the motor control at which they can recruit their core muscles. So the, do they understand the difference between the rectus abdominis and the transverse abdominis? And while you're nasal breathing, you should be able to recruit different muscles in different ways to understand these concepts so then when we maybe start okay now you're going to do the bike five minutes uh nasal breathe only it it makes more sense they've had practice doing it under uh an environment where they didn't even realize that they were being kind of critiqued that way
1: very cool yeah i like the idea that you're kind of you're 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 adding it in really really early on so as the so you know so-called complexity of whatever's coming next happens they they have that sort of baseline of information and baseline experience and knowledge on how they should be breathing as you start to add in more tasks or you know various types of exercise but we're going to kind of change uh, change direction a little bit um we're still going to talk about breathing but um you know breathing is is definitely super popular um you know there's so many people talking about various types of breathing but What do you see as some of the biggest mistakes people are making with their breathing and their breath work in general?
2: Um, Maybe from, how about from a mistake standpoint? I think, I don't know if I, I view it as, oh, they're making mistakes doing this. I don't love that the language around breathing can come off as very mystical all the time. It doesn't have to be that way because we have, better scientific knowledge, we have better vocabulary, we can explain things in a more useful way uh, from a biomechanical standpoint. So when the first things I like to work on with breathing with people is one, I think mouth breathing leads to this like, very externally rotated rib cage in the sense that the external intercostals get really flared and stuck. So you see people with a really big rib cage where they can't you know they can't flex the internal intercostals as much to lower the rib cage so teaching proper breathing for me starts there and i don't know if it needs to start from this uh not to knock on not to knock on anyone specifically i just don't know if breathing for general population needs to start from this mystical standpoint where we're talking about become one with the earth and become one with yourself and, and you know, those types of conversations, because breathing is very, very physical first, and then physiological is a byproduct of doing it correctly. And then once you maybe master those two things, can we now, uh, for lack of a better word, can we now hack our physiology to do even more things like we were just talking about with breathing to maybe increase our lactate threshold or, or change our zone two to a wider area, maybe, for example. But Before it's any of those things, it's physical, your rib cage has to be in the right place, your transverses act as resistance to your diaphragm when you're bringing in air so if you don't know how to recruit these muscles, then you're weakening your core as a byproduct.
0: I love that you're bringing up the biomechanical aspects of it um, because I don't think that is talked about enough. Uh, some some really bright people like Bill Hartman talks about your infra, infrasternal angle and the, the the more open that angle is, you may have someone who's more uh, you know inhale dominant versus exhale dominant um, and how that comes into play. Or like I talk to a lot of people uh, when we talk about shoulder issues that if you're someone who has short chest breaths and then now you kind of go into this forward head carriage, it's cutting off your airway, which is gonna cause more frequent short chest breaths. And now all of a sudden, the next thing you know, your scalenes are all jacked up um, because there's accessory respiratory muscles and these muscles in your neck now are all super tight. Like, I don't care what corrective exercises you give, if they do, even if they're really diligent and they do them two, three times a day for five to 10 minutes, that's not overcoming 12 to 15,000 really crappy breaths a day. Um, You're trying to empty the ocean with a Dixie cup in a way.
2: Yeah. You have to start people off in a way that they understand and everyone, everyone that, you know, I work with or that you guys know or work with, uh, everyone can understand breathing from a physical standpoint first. And I think when you, you teach people to engage their core the right way or to completely exhale all the way, like you were just mentioning and to not be so inhale dominant, Uh, I think that would then coincide with someone who's inhale dominant might be more likely to be a a carb burner at rest because that stimulates that fight or flight. Like it's a, it's a flight or flight, fight or flight response. Being inhale dominant, like your first instinct under a fight or flight response would be to gasp for air. If you heard a loud noise or if there was something, a car backfire, You might fully gasp for air and your internal or your external intercostals would flare, they would flex to elevate the rib cage. The diaphragm is now flexed. So, when we're in this rib position, uh, we are beginning the process of fight or flight. So, if we just hold our body language like that, like if we talked all day to people, or if we felt that we had to hold a certain stature when we walked into the room, and we are subconsciously stimulating that physical process of fight or flight does the physiological component of fight or flight kind of come along for the ride
0: all right so speaking of that um i was checking out one of your posts where you you kind of gave and it was really cool you kind of gave your ideal schedule you had nothing else to do all day but but train and then you had a kind of realistic schedule of how you would uh, truncate that down. But one of the things that, that, that jumped at me as far as the breath work is you have people doing breath work right before they go to sleep. And it's something that I've always recommended. Uh, but tell me kind of how you teach that and how you incorporate that.
2: So ideally, uh, it, it depends if this needs to be a habit that's kind of, uh, added on to something else. Um, if, if someone needs to maybe foam roll before bed or do a few stretches before bed, then we could tack on breathing to that, just nasal breathe while you're doing it. Uh, First, practice just nasal breathing before bed or nasal breathing during those habits. Or second, if you're just laying in bed, practice nasal breathing. And just for a brief two or three second period, just pause your breath after an exhale. Get used to that discomfort. And then maybe over time, you're trying to bridge that to four, five, six seconds. But we just wanna get used to the discomfort of the carbon dioxide buildup in our body, and then we can uh, continue to grow on that habit from there.
0: So I I think we could probably go all day and I am loving this conversation, but I want to be respectful of everybody's time. So uh, Michael, I can't thank you enough for for your time on here and and sharing your expertise. This has been great. We definitely got to have some more conversations because we could go down some, some great rabbit holes with this stuff, but tell everybody about the stuff you're working on between your coaching services and the newsletter, any other projects you have going on.
2: Yeah, so right now I train uh, an executive level clientele out of New York City, and my one-on-one business is, is closed at the moment in the sense that I, I have a full business. Um, so that's kind of where I started picking up some of the uh, the other things I have been working on. So my my newsletter that I put out once a week, I kind of talk through a lot of these topics as much as I can. People follow that or sign up for that newsletter at CrandallPerformance.Substack.com, and that's Crandall, C-R-A-N-D-A-L-L performance.substack.com
0: awesome we'll definitely have uh, the links to that in the show notes want to thank you once again and thank everyone for listening this has been the principles of performance podcast thank you for listening to the principles of performance podcast if you've enjoyed our content please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on youtube apple podcast or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to for more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogrammedesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.